especially for being here today. Today is the last lesson in uh, the spring quarter. So we'll finish up our study today of why we believe. The, <clears throat> the handouts for the next quarter are back at the back. If you didn't pick up uh, one of those, you can do that. There's a schedule, and then next week's lesson, the first lesson in the uh, summer quarter, we'll be studying the book of Revelation. Always an interesting study. And we'll be doing that in one quarter. So we, by virtue of that, we won't be diving too deeply into a lot of the the uh, signs and symbols, but, um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of times, and I think I may have mentioned this before, sometimes we can, we can bog down a lot of times in minutia uh, so much that we lose sight of the big picture. And, um, and so I think this schedule of covering the book in one quarter, I think will be helpful. Uh, because getting more of the big picture will help us then in our personal study to kind of to give us some guidelines and things to, uh, to go by when we dig a little deeper on our own. So I think it will be a good study. And that will start next uh, Sunday. Alan will be teaching incidentally. I'll be at camp uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. All right, let's begin with the prayer, and then we'll conclude our study uh, for this quarter of today. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the night of rest that we had, and we're thankful that you blessed us with another Lord's Day. Thankful for the opportunity to be here at this hour to focus our, our thoughts and our attention on the deity of Christ and His miracles, uh, the evidence that uh, proves Him to be uh, indeed Your Son. We pray that You would bless our study today, and we pray that, uh, that You would continue to bless our lives as we devote ourselves to You. We pray, Father, that in all things, our desire would be to bring You honor and glory for all of the blessings that we have spiritually through Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. We pray these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, today we're concluding our study of Christian evidences. Reasons why we believe the things that we believe. Specifically, we've looked at uh, why we believe that God exists, uh, why we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And today we finish up uh, looking at reasons why we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And specifically today, we're focusing our attention on the miracles of Jesus, the miraculous proof, the miraculous evidence that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Now, the reason why we saved the miraculous evidence for, uh, for the end is because 
the miraculous evidence is recorded, of course, in the New Testament, in the Gospel accounts. But if those documents, the Gospel accounts uh, in, in specific, the New Testament in general, if those are not reliable documents, then there's no reason to trust what they say about the miracles that Jesus performed. And so that's why we wanted to establish, before we got to this point, we wanted to establish the fact that the New Testament is reliable. It's accurate. Uh, it, is, uh, uh, it bears all the marks of uh, a, a document or a series of documents inspired by God. And we've covered those in previous classes. And so whenever you read from reliable testimony, then the reliable testimony needs to be accepted. So we're not going to take the time to go back today and establish the reliability of the accounts. We're just going to look at the accounts that we've already established are reliable and accurate and inspired and see what they say about what Jesus actually did and the miracles that, uh, and, and their purpose uh, in large measure to prove that He was who He claimed to be. All right? <clears throat> there are four words uh, in the New Testament that refer to miraculous deeds, miraculous actions. And each one of these words has a different, uh, not a different meaning, really, but a different nuance, a different shade of meaning, we might say, that focuses on a particular characteristic of the action. One of them is the word teres, which is translated in English by the word wonder. And it refers to, or, or it highlights something that is outside the normal course of events. And so you'll find it in passages like Acts 2.22, where Peter there referred to uh, the, the wonders that Jesus performed. Actually, Peter uses three of the four words for miracle in that one passage. Miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through Jesus Christ. All right. So sometimes when referencing the miraculous deeds of Jesus, this word is used. And it focuses on the fact that it is outside the normal course of events. There's the word dunamis in Greek, translated by mighty works. Uh, sometimes it's translated powers. Incidentally, this word in the, in the Greek language is uh, the word from which we get the English word dynamite comes from the same root. And so you can, you can see kind of through the, the, the etymology of it, uh, the, the focus on power. All right? And so this word stresses, again, the power that brings about the particular deed. You have the word paradoxos, right? right? We get an English word from that, paradox. Translated, uh, often, strange things. And, as you might expect, this is a word that stresses the contradictory nature of the act. Right? It's something that, um, contrary to expectation. And so sometimes it's, you know, they'll use, writers will use that word, and it has to do with uh, the idea of a strange thing. Uh, the passage in Luke, Luke 5, verse 26, one example of that. 
amazement seized them all. They glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today, strange things today. That's paradoxos. And then the last one is the word Samaean, which is translated by the word sign. This word is used almost exclusively in, uh, in John's Gospel account to refer to the miraculous deeds of Jesus. And um, uh, Nicodemus, for example, when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3, he said, We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do except God be with him. Now, the interesting thing about Simeon is that it refers to a miraculous deed, but stresses the underlying spiritual truth that is connected to the deed, that is uh, designed to point... Uh, it's it's the, the, the thing that... The, the spiritual truth that the sign is designed to point to. And that underlying spiritual truth is more important, really, than the sign itself. And that's, and that's why it's called sign, right? We understand the connection between a sign and that to which a sign points. And that's an important thing that we can't overlook. The miracles that Jesus did were not just expressions of power. They were not just expressions of, uh, of uh, strange things or things to cause wonder and amazement, though they were that. They weren't merely that. They were really designed to <clears throat> point the witness of the miracle to an underlying spiritual reality, specifically His deity, that He is indeed the Son of God. That's what these signs were designed to do. Mary and I went to um, Niagara Falls quite a number of years ago, and um, <clears throat> and this is you know this is true of other um, you know natural wonders and such. But we went to Niagara Falls and and um, you know, we went there, and as we were walking up to the falls, they had these different signs that were posted that gave you information about what you were looking at, how much water, you know, was pouring over every second and all that. Well, we didn't spend half the day looking at the sign, right? We saw what the sign said. We read it. We, we saw which direction the arrow was pointing. We didn't spend half the day looking at the sign. We went to see what the sign pointed to. The same is true with regard to the miracles of Jesus. They weren't designed just to be something that, that we stared at in themselves. They were designed, the miracles were designed to point to something else that was more important than the sign itself, than the miracle itself. And what they were designed to point to was the identity of Jesus. All right? So these miracles, if they were... Uh, if people responded to them properly, would lead them to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. And we'll talk more about purpose in just a moment. But, but part of the purpose is wrapped up in the terminology, especially the term sign. So these miracles, I guess if you want to define it, we're talking about a humanly discernible action that transcends or overrides natural law. Now, sometimes we'll use the word miracle to describe 
remarkable things or amazing things that are still, technically speaking, very much according to and in harmony with natural laws. Uh, you know, we may refer to uh, the success of a surgical procedure or something as, as miraculous, or uh, sometimes we may refer to the birth of a baby as, as a miracle, or, um, you know, somebody makes a, a diving catch uh, in a football game, we'll, you know, we'll call it a miraculous. It was a miraculous catch. Um, you know, if if the Astros were to win the, the World Series this year, right? We might use the word miracle for that, right? Or the Cowboys winning the Super Bowl, that would definitely be miraculous. Um, or if Eddie were here two Sundays in a row, we might refer to that as as miraculous. Um, but as as amazing as some of those things might be. Those things are still things that, that, that happen within the realm of natural law. I'm not saying it's wrong to use terminology like that in that way. There is a such thing as hyperbole, right? Exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. And so, you know, if you refer to a, you know, a miraculous catch or something, I'm not saying that's sinful to do that. I'm just saying that we need to make sure we understand that when we're using that term in a literal sense, that we're talking about things not that happen within the natural laws of things, as amazing as some of those laws are. We're talking about something that goes outside of and transcends those, uh, those natural laws. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about miracles. And so let's turn our attention to, then, the nature and characteristics of the miracles of Jesus. We're not going to have time. Uh, I know I've got a lot of Scripture references and things on the handout, and, and I certainly encourage you to, to look those up on your own. We won't have time to, to turn to all of these passages. We'll turn to some, some of them. But I just want to kind of give you a taste of the kinds of things that we're talking about. And remember, these are things, and we'll see this in a moment, these are things that were, that were seen by witnesses, that were verified by the people who actually saw them. The writers of uh, the Gospel accounts relate 17 miracles uh, that showed Jesus to have power over physical illnesses. Sometimes these things are referenced in, in general terms, uh, like in Matthew 9, verse 35, that um, Matthew simply says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. So specifically, he doesn't mention the kinds of diseases and afflictions. He just makes a general broad statement that that's what Jesus was doing. He was healing all kinds of disease and affliction. Uh, he'll get a little more specific in Matthew 15 when he says... <clears throat> And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. All right, so there are some specific things that Jesus was doing. So 17, specifically, there are 17 instances like that in the gospel accounts that mention his, um, uh, his ability to effect healing instantaneously. 
This was not the healing that would happen over, again, the natural course of time. But these were things that um, could only be explained miraculously or as being miracles. All right? There are nine miracles that are related that show Jesus having power over the forces of nature. Matthew 8, verses 26 and 27, one example of that. He and the disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. A storm is uh, threatening to, um, uh, to tear them apart. The Bible says in that passage that He rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm, to which and the disciples were amazed at that. And that was when they asked the question of themselves, Who is this? that even the winds and the sea obey Him. So again, here's, here's an occasion where the, the, the incident cannot be um, explained on the basis of natural law. The storm is raging and He rebukes, and instantaneously there's calm. How about uh, the defiance of gravity? Mar- uh, Matthew 14, verse 25. When Jesus walks on water, Okay, there's power over the forces of nature. What about the control of matter? John chapter 2, where Jesus takes one substance and instantaneously changes it into something else. He takes water and instantaneously changes it to a completely different substance. All right, there are six cures of demon possession that are mentioned in the gospel accounts. We don't have time to delve into uh, a long explanation of and study of demon possession and its confinement to uh, the first century. Uh, but it was, it was uh, something that happened then there are six accounts of Jesus dealing with that, curing demon possession. I mentioned a couple of them in the notes. The man among the tombs, Mark 5, the boy uh, that was tormented by the demon and the disciples of Jesus could not cast the demon out, but Jesus Himself did. There are three resurrections from the dead that are mentioned in the Gospel accounts. That's excluding His own, Jesus' own resurrection. We put that in its own separate category, which we'll get to in a moment. But three resurrections of others that Jesus brought about. The daughter of Jairus, Matthew 9, the widow's son, Luke 7, Lazarus, of course, John chapter 11. Things that can't be faked. One thing that's often overlooked in talking about the miracles of Jesus are the many instances when Jesus performed what we might call miracles of insight, miracles of of knowledge, where the Bible says that Jesus knew something or perceived something that He could not have known had it not been a miraculous uh, event, a miraculous revelation. Uh, Look uh, right quickly at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, 
We begin in verse 23. We read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, makes sense. We talked about that. But verse 24 says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus is performing these miracles. He's doing these signs, John's word. And many are believing, but Jesus knows and understands that these individuals who were believing in Him, their faith was still very new in its infancy. And so He didn't fully entrust Himself to them because He knew them. He knew what was in man. He, needed, he did not need for anybody else to tell Him what was in them, the, the, the level of their faith, its, its relative strength and weakness and all that. He didn't need anybody to tell him that because he knew that himself. Well, that's a miraculous knowledge. What about in John chapter 4 when Jesus encounters the, um, the, the woman in Samaria? He's traveling through and he stops at Jacob's well. The disciples go into town to get food and this woman comes out and Jesus engages her in conversation. And one of the things he says to her, verses 17 through 19, he said to her, go call your husband and have him come. And she said, sir, I have no husband. And he said, you're right about that. You've had five, and the man that you have now is not your husband. And her response was in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Well, indeed. But, but, but again, notice the situation. He knew her marital history. He knew her circumstances. He knew her situation. He'd never met her before. What was that? Well, it was miraculous insight, miraculous knowledge. What about um, Mark chapter 11? Luke chapter 19, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus, when, when Jesus was going to be coming into Jerusalem, this is the final week of his life. In fulfillment of prophecy, Zechariah 9, he would come in riding on uh, a donkey, young donkey. Well, when Jesus is about to do that, He tells His disciples about the existence of this, this colt, this young donkey, where it would be, how it would be confined. He tells the disciples that they would be questioned about what they were doing, but that the animal would be given to them and that it would be one that had never been ridden. He tells them all of that before any of it happens. And they go, and it, and it lays out exactly the way Jesus said it would. Well, what is that? It's miraculous insights, miraculous knowledge. Luke 22, preparing for the Passover. Well, they needed a place to observe the Passover. Jesus, this is within... I mean, He's about to die. This is within a couple of days. So he tells his disciples, Luke 22, 7 through 13, 
He knew that when the disciples came into the city, that they'd see a man carrying a pitcher of water. He says, and you'll follow him to his house, ask him about a room. He'll have one. It'll be furnished. And he's going to allow us to use that for the Passover. Again, all of that before it ever happened, the disciples go and it happens just the way he told them it would. Again, miraculous insight. So when we talk about the nature of his miracles, that's the kind of things that we're talking about. The healing of specific illnesses and diseases, the raising of the dead, the controlling of the forces of nature, this miraculous insight and knowledge. Okay, so it's not like the... um, Well, I'll say more about that in a moment. That's the nature of his miracles. But also, his miracles were, as we said earlier, seen by others. These were not instances where somebody comes along and says, well, you know, I heard that somebody somewhere off in some distant land said that something happened, but nobody, nobody saw it happen. But that's the report. That's, it's, it wasn't anything like that. These were, these were events that were witnessed by many people. The, the, the changing of water to wine, John 2. Well, that was, there was a whole... I don't know how many people were there, but there were a lot that witnessed that, that saw that. Mark chapter 2, uh, when uh, some, some men brought <clears throat> uh, a friend who was unable to walk to Jesus to be healed, and they come to the house where he was, and Mark describes the scene as being so many people packed into the house that they couldn't get in through the, the door. So remember, they climbed up on the roof, and they dug a hole in the thatch roof there and lowered the man down into the presence of Jesus and he healed the man right there. Well, there's a house full of people that saw that. How about the feeding of the 5,000? Matthew 14, there, you, there you've got 5,000 plus. That was the number of the men. You had others there too, the women, the children. Who knows how many thousands witnessed that. And the writers of the New Testament were very clear in their claims of being eyewitnesses to the miracles of Jesus. They weren't ashamed of that. They weren't, they weren't ones who said, well, we heard this happen over here, there, or something. They, they, were, they were bold enough to come out and say, we saw this. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, in referencing the resurrection of Jesus, he said, and we are all witnesses of it. Peter would later write, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, these words, referring to a, 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 the transfiguration specifically of Jesus, but in, in broad terms, application really beyond that to the other things that they saw. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter comes out and says, We didn't make all this up. We saw all of this. 1 John chapter 1. John begins, that which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us and so forth. And he goes on. He's talking about the things that they saw and experienced in their relationship with Jesus when he walked the earth. Luke's gospel account begins with him calling to attention, calling the attention of Theophilus, to whom he's writing, the eyewitnesses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also uh, to offer an orderly account. All right, so you've got, you've got eyewitnesses. And you've got, again, the undeniability of the miracles themselves. And this is an important thing. These were not events that could be faked. Like you see today with these, you know, these so-called faith healers that... that um, deceive people. It's tragic that they do that, but they do. They've been shown to be charlatans. But it wasn't the case with the miracles of Jesus. These were undeniable things. As a matter of fact, even when the enemies of Jesus tried to discredit Him, they never discredited the miracles themselves. What they tried to do was discredit the power by which the deed was done. Matthew 12, verse 24, when Jesus had cast out a demon and it was causing an uproar, the enemy said, well, he casts out demons by the power of the demons. They didn't say, oh, he just faked that. Oh, he did, he didn't, he's not really casting out demons. They couldn't deny that the miracle had taken place. So they had to come up with something else, so they tried to deny the power by which it was done. And Jesus, when He did miracles, think about Mark chapter 3 and the man with the withered hand. Think about that. Here was a man who, who, whose, whose hand was deformed. And Jesus instantaneously made it whole. You can't fake that. Matter of fact, in Mark 9 verse 43... The word maimed is used there describing some of the ones Jesus for healing. They brought the maimed. That word means limbs that are deformed, bent, or crooked. And Jesus healed them. All right, so you're talking about undeniable actions, not things that are easily faked. And, you know, the, the, the challenge is still there for these, these modern-day uh, so-called healers. I'll tell you something you're never going to see. You're never going to see any of those guys uh, go over to Texas Children's and empty the place out. You're not going to find that. Why? They can't. 
That's why. They want you to think that they can heal people. But, but they don't go to the hospitals and empty the places out. They don't go to the cemeteries and raise the dead. Because they can't. Jesus did. All right. Purpose. Why the miracles? Why did Jesus do these? One, to prove his identity. That's kind of the thing that we've been talking about uh, from the beginning of class. But here's a passage, John chapter 20, that, that lays that out for us. Why did Jesus do these things? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, here's why I wrote what I wrote. And, and John's gospel account focuses on seven specific signs that Jesus did, and everything else just kind of fills in the, the spaces and the gaps, either before leading up to the sign or response and reaction to the sign after. John 20, beginning of verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, John said, I was very selective in what I included in this gospel account. He did a whole lot of other things. And he did them in the presence of his disciples, but I didn't record those. But these are written. I recorded the ones that I recorded for this purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John said that's the purpose. That's why I wrote it. That when you read about these events that Jesus did, these miraculous things that he did, that it would generate faith in you, but not just generic faith, faith, confidence that Jesus was Christ, Messiah, and Son of God, divine. In Luke 7, verse 16, after Jesus raised the widow's son, the response of the people was, God has visited His people. Luke 7, 16, indeed. So, they were designed to prove His identity. He was the Son of God. That He was God's spokesman. Remember, that's what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus got it right when he said, No one, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with you. So they proved that Jesus had come from God, that He was the spokesman of God. John 6 verse 14 says, When the people saw the sign... They said, this indeed is the prophet that is to come into the world. God's spokesman. Peter in Acts 2 verse 22 said of Jesus that he was approved by God among you by the miracles, wonders, and signs which God did by him in your midst and you're well aware of. So they proved that he was God's son, God's spokesman, Messiah. In John 7 31, as they're contemplating what Jesus had done miraculously, the people said, when the Messiah comes, what will He do that this man hadn't already done? Shows that they were, they were getting the message. So to prove His identity, to prove His authority. Mark chapter 2, we mentioned that earlier, when they, when they lowered the man into the house, the crowded house where Jesus was. He said to the man who was laying on this... this portable bed, he said, uh, your sins are forgiven you. 
And that caused some murmuring among the people that were there because they were, they were saying to themselves, wait a minute, who can forgive sins but God alone? What, why is this man saying his sins are forgiven? And Jesus responded and said, All right, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you will know, and here these are his words, Mark 2, 10 and 11. So that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And he did. All right, so that particular healing of that man, Jesus said, was for this purpose, so that the rest of you will know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Okay, but again, that's still connected to his deity, because who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? And so Jesus is saying, I have the authority to forgive sins, proven by my healing of this man, and if I have the authority to forgive sins, what does that tell you about my nature, about who I am, that I'm God? God in the flesh, all right? So it comes back to His identity, His deity. Sometimes Jesus did miracles to show compassion. But again, still, I believe secondarily to the purpose of proving His identity. But, Mark, but Matthew 14 mentions that when He saw the multitudes that needed to eat, He had compassion on them. And then to produce faith, which we talked about a moment ago from John chapter 20. We don't really have time to look at um, uh, specifically the seven signs in John's gospel account. Um, but um, just very quickly, I, I like the way Merrill Tenney laid these out in his, um, uh, in his book, John, the Gospel of Belief. Do I have that in the handout about specifically John's? Um, no, I don't. Okay. Um, well, we'll skip that then. Read Merrill Tenney's book if you get a chance. The best evidence of all for proving the deity of Christ is His own resurrection. All these other things, all these other miracles are, are legitimate evidence. I'm not saying that they're not. They are. But nothing is more compelling than His own Resurrection from the dead. As a matter of fact, Paul states that the resurrection of Jesus is the, the, the linchpin of the validity of Christianity. That Christianity, as God's religion, stands or falls on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. If He was, then nothing else matters. That Then then we are responsible to follow Him because He's proven beyond any doubt that He is indeed the Son of God. But if He wasn't raised from the dead, then of all people in the world, we deserve the most pity because we placed our trust and our confidence in one who's still dead and we're acting like He's not. All right, so this is, this is the key. And Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, where he says it's at the heart and core of the gospel message, verses 1 through 4, and that if he wasn't raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins and, and we deserve to be pitied. And from our perspective today, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, there's no reason for us to be here today. There's just not. 
If he was not raised from the dead, then we just need to all go home, sell the property, and, and go do something else. I mean, that's, that's how serious it is. If he wasn't raised from the dead, there's no reason for us to be here. But if he was, then we have every reason to be here. So, what happened? Relative to what happened to his body, three days after it was placed in Joseph's tomb, there are just a handful of possibilities. We've talked about this, I know, in, in a, a sermon sometime back. But everyone is in agreement, whether believer or skeptic. Everyone is in agreement that, with, with the exception of some fringe individuals that we talked about a few weeks ago who deny that Jesus even lived, they're, they're, they're fringe people. Everybody that is considered the evidence believes that Jesus was a real person, uh, that he died, that he was buried, and that three days later the body was missing, and that the disciples of Jesus believed that Jesus was raised from the dead and even gave their lives in defense of that position. Right? Even the skeptics are in agreement on that. Now, they may not believe that the disciples were right in thinking that Jesus was raised from the dead, but nobody can deny that the disciples believed it and they gave their lives in defense of that position. So ultimately, it, it, it boils down to what happened to the body. Everybody agrees it was gone three days later. Something happened to it. What happened to it? One possibility that's been offered is the swoon theory which is the idea that Jesus really didn't die uh, on the cross, that he only fainted, and that after he was placed in the, in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb and, and his opportunity to rest, laying in there, that he ultimately revived and uh, walked out of the tomb. But remember... He's already been scourged by a Roman soldier, nailed to a cross by Romans who knew exactly what they were doing in crucifixion. A Roman soldier even said that he was dead, Mark 15. He, the, the soldier saw that he had died, the text says. He was stabbed in the side with a spear. All of that's happened, so you're going you're to expect me to believe that someone who has been treated like that could get up, push away a stone in front of the opening of the tomb that was so large that three women were wondering how they were ever going to move it, Mark 16, verse 3, and then he's going to overpower the guards and walk away. Swoon theory. Possibility number two, the swoon theory doesn't really... The breath that it takes to refute that is not even worth it. So, possibility number two, the enemies of Jesus stole the body. We know it was missing. What happened to it? Well, maybe the enemies stole it. Well, that defies all manner of common sense because the enemies took every precaution to see that the body stayed exactly where it was. Because Jesus had said that I'm going to be raised from the dead. 
the disciples, he had told his disciples he was going to be raised from the dead. And when, and when the enemies went to Pilate to secure the tomb, that's what they said. You know, he, he, the story was that he was going to be raised from the dead three days later, so we need to guard that so that the disciples don't come and steal the body and perpetuate that story. So, okay, you've got a guard, go seal it. They did everything they could to keep the body in the tomb. So the enemies didn't steal the body. As a matter of fact, too, if, they, if the enemies had the body, what are they going to do on the day of Pentecost when Peter gets up in front of that, that Jewish audience in, in, in the temple area and says he was raised from the dead and we are witnesses of his resurrection? If the enemies had the body, what would they do? Show it. Oh, really? So he was raised from the dead? Well, how do you explain this? Enemies didn't have the body. Well, then maybe the disciples stole it. The friends of Jesus, the non-enemies. Well, they couldn't have done that if they wanted to. Why? It was guarded. Now, of course, after the resurrection, that was the story. The guards were supposed to go around saying, well, tell them that um, you were asleep, and while you were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body. I guess they never expected anybody to ask them these questions. All right, if you were sleeping, then how do you know what happened to the body? If you were sleeping and the body was stolen, how do you know it was stolen by the disciples? And if the disciples did steal the body, why not go arrest them for breaking the seal of Roman authority and stealing? And if they stole the body, why would they give their lives for somebody that they knew was a dead imposter when they wouldn't give their lives for him when he was very much alive? Remember when he was arrested, they all forsook him and fled. They wouldn't give their lives for him when he was very much alive. You're going to tell me they're going to give their lives for him knowing that he's a dead imposter? And they've got his rotting corpse hidden away somewhere? The disciples didn't have the body. He didn't faint. The enemies didn't have it. The friends didn't have it. There's only one other possibility. It was raised from the dead just like he said. All right. Five possibilities regarding Jesus. We've got a couple of minutes. Can I steal two minutes? One, he never lived. We've already seen that that can't be the case. The evidence is too abundant. Number two, he was just a good moral man, but nothing more. That can't be true either. He was either the Messiah or he was not a good man. Think about that. Jesus could not have knowingly lied and blasphemed claiming to be the Son of God, knowing that He wasn't, and at the same time, be a good man. But you hear that all the time. Well, I don't believe He was the Son of God, but He was a good man. If He's going around claiming to be the Son of God when He's not, then He's not a good man. Maybe He was mentally deranged. Well, if so, then explain the exalted nature of His teachings. Love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Matthew 7, 12. Does that sound like the, the ravings of a lunatic? Well, he was a liar and an imposter. Well, then explain his miracles and explain the empty tomb. The only alternative is that he was exactly who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, hopefully these have been helpful lessons to you, and um, we'll start our new study next week. Thank you much.